Hello, I'm Danny Gallagher. Welcome to our Business Gateway Connection series of podcasts. We're focusing a few of our episodes on speaking with well-known Scottish brands. And today we're chatting to butcher turned entrepreneur, Simon Howey. Simon, thank you for joining us today. Morning. Your brand is the Scottish Butcher. Your products are in many establishments, including the big supermarket chains. It's a multi-million pound business and you've diversified into other areas. But let's rewind. So you've always been based in Perthshire and always wanted to be a butcher. Yeah, um, a lot of people know the story, but I'm a a farmer's son from Dunning, just west of Perth. Um, Mum and dad had a dairy farm. My dad was a proper farmer. He was, I mean, I have the farm now, but I'm not the real farmer that my dad was. Um, So growing up with two brothers, we had 130 acres on the farm and he could make a living, but there was no way we were all going to make a living. So he he introduced me to one of his friends who had a butcher shop in Perth, Dick Rattray, and said, you want a Saturday boy? So I went in there at age 12 and, and did my Saturdays and loved it. You know, and I mean, it was nothing glamorous about it. It was just doing what youngsters do in a shop, helping them. And of course, you, you learn the slow way and the best way uh, about how to, what goes on, how people earn a living. And you look at different people, some are earning well and some are not. And you think, where do I want to be in the in the jigsaw? So it was pretty obvious to me that I wanted to be Dick Rattray, not, not one of the butchers standing behind the counter. But I knew that I had to go through the apprenticeship route, etc. So I finished school. Uh, I stuck in towards the end of my schooling. I didn't do so well at the beginning, but I got cracking at the, at the hires and, and uh, O-level stage, but still decided to, to go, go and serve my apprenticeship. So I did that. And it, unfortunately, at age when I was just before my 20th birthday, Mr. Rattray died, and I decided that I didn't want to, to stay on in the business. So I... I I'd put together some money and bought a wee co-op shop. Well, actually, my mother bought the co-op shop in the village for £2,400. And I got the shop from her and paid her back within six months. So I opened up in December, 16th of December, 1986, and um, started on the journey of, of developing the local shop. Uh, it was fantastic. And I, mean, I can tell you that there, for all the things that have happened positively since then, very few have given me the, the exhilaration of that feeling of stepping into my own premises that I didn't want to fail. No one wants to fail. Um, I took on my first full-time employee in May 1987, Jim Park, who's still with me today. He's thinking about retiring. Um, he's number one. I see the, the wage slips coming through every week or the, the, the wage uh, manifest coming through, and we still have number one, number five, number seven, number 14, so we've got a lot of plus 25-year servers in the business. Jim's done 30, nearly 35 years. Wow, loyalty counts for a lot then. It does, it does. And I mean, there's people, there's people who come and go, it just happens. But we, we sort of have a thing that says we managed to hold on to the good ones. That's absolutely not strictly true because there have been some brilliant people who have moved on to other things. But, you know, in terms of the, the butchers and the, and, the, and the boys and girls out in the factory, we really do try hard to keep keep the ones that do a great job. So so the shop worked and it worked well. And pretty soon I realized that there's only so much you're going to be able to extract out of a, a rural village in terms of earning power and, and activities. So I started to knock on the door of hotels, restaurants, 
I didn't get that very much of a warm welcome in those days because you know, small local butchers had, had a limited range and uh, you know we weren't getting run over in the rush. But but it came and I got my first account, Brethren Towers in Octorada. Remember it when I went and he said, yeah, okay, I'll give you the order. And I thought, mm, right, okay, how am I going to do this? Uh, at that time, I didn't have a, a car or a van, um, but I borrowed my mother's and uh, I used to put the stuff in the back of the car and in the boot, in boxes, obviously, and then get to the place and put the white coat on and walk around the corner into the into the hotel or the restaurant and just worked from there, got going. One, The great thing about chefs and is that they, they all move around. So if there's three or four in a kitchen, one will move on and he'll phone you and say, come and supply me. But uh, it, it, was a, it was a slow journey at first, but enjoyable. And to be honest, what I have learned, and I, I preach this to my, my own family, is that it's much more sustainable if you, if you do it slowly, learn what, what's right and what's wrong. And any of your mistakes are normally fairly minor. If you're moving too quickly, and trying to get on too fast, that's when we've all made mistakes. Let, let's talk about just uh, rewinding a bit. Most businesses need a bit of luck, we reckon. There was an element of luck in the early days. You mentioned the chefs, and I'm thinking about the puncture incident with a head chef at Glen Eagles. What happened mm-hmm. there? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a, an old story now, and, and after 35 years of telling it, there'll be a pile of people groaning when they hear this, but... I I lived at home with my folks in the farm and the village shop was was obviously down in the heart of Dunning and um, I used to walk up after I finished each evening and normally about six o'clock, it was a beautiful summer's night and the local garage was was not far from the shop on my way home. There's a chap there who was in, looked like he was in this bit of a state about getting the wheel off his car um, to try and get, uh, try and get this, this puncture changed. And I always remember it was a brand new Ford Orion and uh, it was a smart looking car in its day. So I went and said to him, what's the problem? He said, he won this car in a competition. I remember thinking, wow, that must have been a good competition. Uh, he said, but it's the, it was the very beginning of the new locking wheel nuts going on the car. So he, he couldn't find how to get this wheel off. So anyway, I went off to the farm and got a thing called the Marlin Spike, which is a, a, a mash hammer. And we got this, this, locking wheel nut round and we got it off got his wheel chains and off he went and he, he said to me who are you and I said I'm who I was in the local butcher and he called me the next day to thank me and explained that he was the head chef at Glen Eagles now we'd been knocking on their door for forever because it was the dream ticket for the local local business to be able to supply and even even as a secondary or a third supplier just as a distressed supplier from time to time would have been fantastic and if I tell you that that from pretty much that point onwards until now, we still supply Glen Eagles, have done, been the principal meat supplier for for over 30 years. That's the best tire you ever changed. Absolutely. Never never changed a better one. But it, to be fair, there was a, there were other things at play. Um, the chap was a really good guy, and uh, Colin Busey was his name, and, and he he was mentored by a chap called Alan Hill, who was the head chef and went on to become the general manager of the hotel. And it was it was an opportunity to build a relationship. At first, we didn't supply them with very much, but we just worked our way in gradually over the years and made sure that we were never seen as just the local guys who can do the distress Sunday morning stuff. We, we, we wanted the mainstream. We wanted the big ticket items. 
Um, and I can assure you that that for for us that that was a massive platform because they had forty chefs in the kitchen. Then within within a year, a bunch of those guys had moved to the old course at St Andrews, Turnbury, the Glasgow Hilton, a number of these big hotels, and then we were we were supplying them as well. So was that the start of the expansion then for you? Really, there were there are a bunch of things in the story that that from in thirty five years that was definitely one that said that was a game changer. There was there was probably one every five years. There's something that you say if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be in the position we were in that we're in today, and that was one of them. Well, that's, that's interesting. So, any lessons you wish you'd known before you started out? Oh, absolutely. I mean, any 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 person in his fifties would love to would love to have the wisdom they have now in their in their early twenties. There's no question of that, but. If you did, would you t- would you jump in? Would you take the chances? I don't know if you would. I think what makes us what slows us down in our and as we move on in life is that we we've had the scars and the cuts. We then think we get a little bit too comfortable. The the, the fantastic thing that youth have is is ignorance and and a belief in themselves that perhaps is a bit unfounded. And I had plenty of that, and it, it gets you through. It gets you because. One thing I did learn was, so if I was telling my younger self something, it would be that the bad days end in the evening and the next day starts. And I, it, that happens today. Yesterday was a, was a rotten day. You know, just nothing was going right. Today is absolutely fine. It's, it's, it's a new day. And that, that has, that's something that we, we must always remember. I probably, you know, I was giving myself a bit of a business lesson. It would be, be a bit more speculative, and then you would argue that things have gone okay for us. But I could have, I could have pushed on a bit faster with maybe taking a bit more debt into the business, being a little bit afraid. I grew up in a in the farming community where my dad was paying fifteen percent interest to the banks regularly, fifteen percent, not three and four. We've got youngsters in the business now say, oh, "I've got a mortgage for three percent. It's quite high." No, no, I, I'm, I sat at the meal table in the evenings and watched my father saying. One day, interest is twenty percent at the bank. You know that that means essentially your debt doubles every three years. I remember it well. My first mortgage started at nine percent, and within a year went to eighteen percent. But you still get over these kind of things. I think you've probably answered my my next question was the advice for for budding entrepreneurs. So let's briefly talk about your other businesses. When I read about you, I'm reminded about Victor Kayam of Remington. And you and I are of a similar age, mid-40s. Yeah. But we remember, uh, my arithmetic was never very good, Simon. Uh, where we remember the TV ad, it was so good I bought the company. I, and that's happened to you along the way, is it not? Yeah, well, not, not, not in quite the same way, but but you, you, you could look back upon it like that. Um, so, so when I was... I, I bought a number of retail shops. My my model, I thought at the time in the early nineties, was buy a butcher shop, get it going, um, and and use it as a sort of central hub in that area to supply hotels and restaurants. So there would be little mini mini factory units that could supply retail to people coming in the door, but have a van that ran out and did its its local deliveries to the hotels. 
long before there were ever home deliveries in, in the way that there are now. So during that, I would I would knock on the door of the butcher in Dunkeld and say, would you like to sell your shop? And she very kindly said she would. And we did a deal and I bought the shop. And then I got set about renovating it and bringing it up to, to, to what I thought the place should look like. So that meant going out to buy um, interior wall panelling and floor coverings and all the, all the bits and pieces. And during that process, I went to a Dundee company called Highgrove and um, I was basically told those are the these are the prices take it or leave it and there was take it or leave it and and that that for me is 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 always a, it's a sign it's either a sign of ignorance or arrogance or it's or they're getting their money too easily and they, they weren't ignorant or arrogant they were just making good you know they were getting great money so I, I got chatting to the guy about the process of this product they sold which was was a laminate face panel for for shops uh, it, it sounded so straightforward. Um, and he himself was enthusiastic about going on his own. So I said, look, why don't we, I've got a bit of money and you've got the expertise. Why don't we get together in the evening, have a chat and see what we could do? So essentially in 1991, we opened a business called Shore Laminates in, in Perth and we started making laminate faced products for the, for the construction industry. We, the, one of the watershed things, I play music, I play the accordion in a band and I was playing at a gig one night and there was a piper there. Again, this changing the changing the tire analogy. Uh, I, there was a piper there called Tom Johnson, who was a super guy, and he said, "I own a business called Thomas Johnson Shop Fitters in Glasgow. We've just won the project to to build the, to do all the fit out in the new international terminal at Glasgow." I said, "You're kidding me!" No, he said, and that was all laminate face products. So when you walk through Glasgow Airport now, all the laminate face products were done by us in the in mid nineties, and that was through through meeting Tom. We built a relationship, and and we, he ended up. We went on tours together with the music and did did a bunch of really fun things in the nineties, and he, uh, that got us into supplying that. And then when we did Edinburgh Airport, we did uh, sorry when we did Glasgow, we got Edinburgh. We got the new Scottish office at, at Victoria Quay and a bunch of really big, you know, Edinburgh just came alive in the 90s with new buildings. And so Shaw Laminate supplied all the products for that. But crucially, what I what I, I learned from my meat business was that brand was the key. And is. And if you were asking me a number of important things about business, brand would be up there in the in the top two or three. Are you saying then that once you've successfully run a, a business? doesn't matter what business it is, potentially you could use that expertise to run any kind of business in any sector. Well, well, to finish that small piece off was what, what I was learning from my meat business was that if you have brand, it works when you're sleeping. So if you've got products that are out in, on, a, on other people's shelves selling, then they're, they're making money for you while you can get on with other things. And what we didn't have in the laminate business was brand because we were essentially a contractor supplier, okay? So we were reliant on, on our customers winning projects who then came to us and said, I need a black, blue, and a green, please. And really what we wanted to do was be producing a series of products that we could say, there's a range, then go to retailers or, or, or wholesalers and say, you sell this range of products. So if, if you went to a company like Blue Circle who makes cement or Marley's who make garden furniture, uh, uh, paving products and said, would you like to be in the construction industry? 
uh, doing projects, they would say, no, thank you. We, we, we make products that we sell to retail. So the long and short of it is we, we came up with a product called Wetwall, which was a shower panelling product. We, we started making that, and it was a bit slow at first, but when we got it into the wholesale trade, so the, the builders, merchants, it went good guns, but it was a, there was a, a bit of a watershed when we managed to get into B&Q, home base, and, and the likes of those. So that business was sold in 2018 for um, £23 million, and that was a £25,000 investment. And on purely on the back of brand, if it wasn't for brand and for if it wasn't for brand and, and, and product development, it would have been nowhere, you know, if it was purely a construction-led business. So the 23 million, is that where you got the strap line, you get a wowie with Howie? Well, <laughs> don't know who came up with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think we probably should speak about uh, some topical issues. How's the pandemic affected your business operations? Um, well, at first, I mean, essentially, uh, exactly a year ago now, we were all looking at each other, I think, as everyone in the country was saying, where's this going to end? How is it going to pan out? So we, we had no crystal ball. Thankfully, our meat business was was predominantly retail. So we sold into the multiple retail trade, um, the big six supermarkets. And we had about 25% of our business still supplied to hotels and restaurants. Uh, if the balance had been the other way around, I don't think we'd been the shape we're in today. Um, the hotel and restaurant trade completely imploded. We went from £100,000 a week of turnover selling to hotels and restaurants to zero in, in three, four days. So fans, people, butchers, infrastructure, and, and, and all our administrators essentially became redundant for a period of time. So the furlough schemes kicked in for a few of those people and we had to deploy the balance in, thankfully, a big upturn in our retail trade. All of a sudden, if you like the analogy, we know, we know there was a, a bit of a run on, on loo rolls, but nobody really spoke about the fact that bacon, sausage, black pudding, haggis, beef olives, mince stew, and all the, all the, the, the staple meat products were, were absolutely flying. You couldn't, you couldn't get enough chicken. Um, so so the, the meat trade went ballistic, providing that you were supplying the, the supermarket. So we went on to pretty much 24-7 operation. And the, the turnover that we dropped in, in our retail in our hotels and restaurant business pretty much doubled in our in our um, supermarket business. So through serendipity, through through good luck, through anything you like, we, we were in a position to to maximize that. We'd also been spending heavily over the past five years on growing our factory premises and putting in new equipment and new processes, which which we were, and we, what were we doing? What do we talk about every day in our businesses? How can we get more out of our existing customers? How can we get new products, new develop, new new lines in and leverage these relationships to, to the maximum? We, If you want to be big in selling food in this country, you have to have a, a very good, strong relationship with the supermarkets. There are other ways, but it's it's, very difficult if you're not in bed with the supermarkets. We find them genuinely, I'm not just saying this, we find them really fair. Um, I think they went through a period where they were they were the king of the heap, but we see them, they, they act with a lot of humility 
and respect towards the supply chain. Now we get paid a lot faster from our supermarket customers than we do from our hotel and restaurant customers. I was in the supermarket yesterday and I was thinking about you because when I approached the the bacon and sausage aisle, I thought, wow, okay, I'm not going to need to do a lot of research on Simon Howie. There's all these products in front of me. Um, What about Brexit then? Uh, We're not genuinely getting a lot lot of trouble with it. I'm probably a wee bit more concerned that if one of our German machines breaks down that we can get the parts for it in time. We know we'll get them, but are we going to get them next day the way we used to? I don't think we are. So we've, you know, our, our, there's a number of things that we're having to rethink. We're, we're not struggling to get ingredients because we don't buy foreign meat, but some of the seasonings that go into our, our sausages and a number of these things are not grown in this country. You, there, there's a whole bunch of those products have got to be imported. But the suppliers that we use are big sophisticated businesses who wouldn't be down in the last jar of salt on the shelf. So um, there's, you know, it seems to be working away. I don't think Brexit's going to be, you know, an easy thing. I think what it feels like to me at the moment is that we're one of the few countries that has imposed economic sanctions on itself. Uh, it's 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 unheard of that, that we, we could have made things as difficult for ourselves as we have as a country. I think I think we'll get through it. The, the politicians haven't covered themselves in glory. We've been talking about Brexit for such a long time. And to see the shellfish um, processors and farmers in such a state, to see the fishermen queuing up at the docks and having all these problems of wasted food and, and, and the government covering it over by giving them a bit of a subsidy or, or, or offering them a, a lifeline with, with some cash is ridiculous. It's not needed and it's a waste. It's a waste of food and it's a waste of cash. Well, you mentioned marketing being um, quite significant in terms of your business. And um, so so what's the story about the haggis in space? Ah, yeah. Um, we, we've got a wonderful brand director. She's, she's really smart and she's totally dedicated and, and loves the business like like we all do. And she came up with the idea last year that that um, we, would, we would find a company who would Take a product to space and give us a bit, you know, a lot of PR coverage. And and wow, did we get some coverage for that? It was honestly wasn't the most expensive thing we've ever done by a long stretch compared to a bit of TV advertising or something like that. It was it was pennies. So we found a a, a great small business who who have a, a weather balloon that that um, they they brought to the business here and a platform with cameras on it. So we we fixed the, the product onto it and you probably saw on the on the video they we launched it on a very crisp cold snowy day back in, in January and up it went to 110,000 feet 109,000 feet from from earth it didn't didn't do any harm that there are very few planes in the air at the moment so we managed to get permission to do it without any problem it was great See, it was on James Corden's show in America. Not, again, you're not going to sell any more haggis because James Corden speaks about it, but but just the overall feel-good factor. Um, if you said to us, did it did it add 50% to your sales or 25%? No, it didn't. And But what it does is it, it just gets... Brand, brand is the place you take up inside someone's head. I, I didn't actually come up with that but but that is what it is if someone says to you what does brand mean what, what's it all about 
then it is the pigeonhole in your head that for meat or for vacuum cleaners or for shirts or for shoes. There's a, there's a pigeonhole for every one of them and you want to be the one in that pigeonhole for your product. So for, for us, and I don't really subscribe to sort of brand development or no, let's do this because it's good for the brand. We, we like to do things where we're going to sell more because we've done it. And that and it, that's good, not only for the brand, but it's good for the bottom line. So, but there are some things that you think, well, you know, how's this going to pan out for us? And very few things we've ever done have been as good as, as putting a haggis into space. Well, as you say, there wasn't a call to action. And I couldn't work out what was going on, first of all, but it then immediately brought a smile to my face. Yeah. And then I came away thinking, wow, that's that's really clever. That's made me think about it. And then, of course, when I went into the supermarket yeah. and saw the products, I then remembered about the, the weather balloon and I thought, God, it's clever. Well, when you think about it, it's trying to put that stamp on your forehead that when you walk past the product, it just it flicks up to you because that's all the the... You know, I think the new marketing techniques that we're going to see is going to be augmented reality. Um, so, so augmented reality is 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 what it's about. You, you're going to soon be walking around a supermarket with your telephone. You'll just fire it as something, and it'll give you a recipe, and you won't even know what the fruit is. It, you you might see something that you see on shelf. I like the look of that. I have no idea what it is. You just take your phone, put it to it, and it'll give you the ten things that that you would see or think of because you've seen that product. And that's what we're trying to do with our product. Well, I'm guessing that uh, you have very little time to even sleep, but you mentioned you're a musician. So that must be what you do in your spare time. It is, or it, or it was. But I mean, at the moment, no musicians are doing very much other than practicing in the house. Um, I, I love Scottish dance music. I've, I've played in a band. My, my mates are musicians, Scottish dance music musicians. We've um, my mum and dad were keen on music, particularly my dad. He was, he was, and his pals were names that you would, you would possibly have heard of Ian Powery and Jimmy Blue and, and a number of big Scottish musicians back in the sixties who were on the White Heather Club, Andy Stewart and 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 Mickey Ainsworth. You know, people who who were local guys earning a tenner a week, ending up making. 500 pounds a week you know they were big they were getting a sack of fan mail these were my dad's very close friends so I just got this bug of being around people who played music and the fun that they had it was a very very social scene so to be part of that then there was a competition scene I, I got a very very good music teacher locally who helped me and then you get together with guys in the way that I mean I'm not going to say it's rock and roll but in the same way as as any of these big groups get together when they're young it's just fun together and all of a sudden it moves into something else you get things so I I, I had never flown on an airplane and next minute we get asked to go out in, in 1989 to Japan to play a, a, a festival out there with with the Vale of Athol Pipe Band so, you know somebody from a local village is in, in the in the 80s going away out there and doing that with his mates having a few beers playing a few gigs I mean it was just the best fun then we, we get to get involved in the St Andrews uh, night scene and the and the burn scene and there's Kaylee dances and weddings and all the all the parties and dances that you do. It just it's a completely different thing. You go there, one of the guys in the band's a, a blacksmith. We've got a, a, a music teacher in the band. You know, people from all walks of life, computer programmer, and 
we don't talk about work, we just talk about rubbish. That's a good outlet to have, I would have said, given that you've got a number of business interests which which keep you occupied during the day. Yeah, and don't forget, in the, in, in the early days, I was playing, I mean, without exaggeration, two or three nights a week. And it was financially very good. You know, I was I was I was married at 22, had a youngster, Ross, and then Lynn came along. So I was I had two kids by the time I was age 25. And I was earning three or four hundred pounds a week at that time in my in my band and not take not having to take money out of my business. So being able to leave it alone. Uh, it doesn't sound like life-changing, but but at the time you could you could pay a few bills and do a few things with that. So rather than going out and spending 50 quid a night, I was making a hundred pounds a night. You know what I mean? It, was, it, it worked for me. Yeah. It, it keeps your feet on the ground. It is, 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 you know, I still, I still do an odd broadcast for BBC on take the floor program on a Saturday night. And I did one last year, Jennifer called me to do one and you, you know, you get in there and the, you know, the, the, the heart palpitations just when the green light goes on and say, right, go and you've got to nail it spot on and it's 43 minutes of music it's not it's not a couple of tunes and a and a and a laugh it's a lot of content to put down so so the rehearsals giving it the respect because it can make a complete fool of you if you don't do your homework well it's funny you mentioned that i did a couple of shows many years ago with the alexander brothers and they bickered non-stop backstage all the time mm. i mean they just fought undeniably all the time and as soon as the curtain opened it was as though the green light had gone on yeah total professionals it was incredible absolutely incredible i'll never forget that these were the kind of guys not not tom and jack but but these were the kind of guys that were my dad's pals and they were they had this their chat was all like music hall chat they had like end of the pier jokes and just full of fun taking the mickey out of each other and enjoying a few drums, music. And then when the music started, it was just like this. They, they had it perfected. They had it perfected. So so that that was where I got the bug from. My, my pals, who are, who are much better musicians than me, you know, they can play upside down. If a fly walks across the page, they play it. You know, they're, they're just so good, so talented. Well, that's been very interesting today to talk about your business activities and also your music um, Simon Howe, thank you very much. It's been really good today. Thank you. Great to speak to you, Danny. Thank you. This has been a Business Gateway podcast. And for more information on all of our support services, go to bgateway.com. You can also listen to this podcast and our other Business Gateway Connections episodes at bgateway.com slash connections dash podcast. And I'll be back next time for another of our Business Gateway Connections. Until then, bye for now.